This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of the Brown Baby Podcast. I'm your host, Nick S. Shukla. Brown Baby is a weekly parenting podcast asking, how do we raise our kids with joy, wonder, and uncertain, and let's face it, let's face it, let's face it, increasingly bleak times. Inspired by my memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family, and home, each week I invite fellow parents, writers, musicians, chefs, comedians, actors and more to talk about their parenting journeys and the highs and lows they've experienced along the way. This is a frank and funny look at parenting and it will spark honest self-effacing conversations about how we tell our kids about the world. Featuring parenting fails plus the best and worst advice me and my guests have ever received this will hopefully be the comforting uplifting podcast for anyone who's ever found themselves looking for answers in a sleep deprived google hole today's guest is multiple award-winning musician and activist anushka shankar sitarist composer producer anushka is a singular genre-defying figure within the classical and contemporary acoustic and electronic world music scenes anushka has a new ep coming out um like a deluxe edition of her incredible ep love letters which is dropping in june 2021 and currently, you can stream a new song from her, Alif Lenz, and my amazing dear friend Nikita Gill called Sister Susanna. I love Anushka and Nikita, and I was over the moon to hear that they've collaborated. Check out that song, it is brilliant. So this week, Anushka and I talk about her life as a touring musician, raising kids, uh, raising two boys, her relationship with her father, Ravi Shankar, and how she's been talking to her kids about their identities. Before we start, just a quick message to say that this podcast is free, and I really want to keep it that way. So please, just... You know, I record this and edit it and upload it all myself. So if you're enjoying it, please can I trouble you to buy my memoir, Brown Baby, uh, which is out now. And so many of the themes in the podcast draw from it. So yeah, it's available everywhere. Uh, there's links to where you can buy it from in the show notes. If you have a preferred book retailer, please go there. Also, there's a supporter feature where you can support me if you already have the book. And just like and subscribe and ask your local library for brown baby that is totally cool with me uh just please yeah support if you can thanks okay uh i will shush now short intro this week um let's get to the interview with anushka shankar hello anushka shankar thank you so much for joining me on the brown baby podcast how are you i'm all right how are you love <laughs> as you can tell from that super weird intro i'm okay <laughs> i'm like Trying to find balance Good. today. Well, I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to be chatting yeah. with you. Oh well, you're being you're being all like humble and everything, but you know, you are Grammy nominated artist, recording artist Anushka Shankar as of this morning. I know you have been nominated and winner in the past, but you know. It's pretty cool. Love letters, doing the business. That's exciting. How does that feel? Yeah, I found out last night. Uh found out last night I got nominated and it was very exciting. Um and today's been a very sort of normal morning. Um that's the funny thing, like three friends texted me last night and were like, Are you out celebrating? And I was like, first of all, what are you talking about? Where would one go to celebrate? Right, there is a global, celebrate right there's now? a global pandemic. And secondly, right now. 
Yeah, secondly, can you stop interrupting me? I'm trying to put my kids to bed. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, it's just evening with the kids, really. But it's very exciting and it feels good. And yeah, it's nomination number seven, which is kind of insane. And that does make me really proud. But it also makes me really try and temper my excitement because it's bloody nomination number seven, zero wins is the streak so far. So it's really like hard I find this window really hard between something like getting nominated and then two months before you know you're going to win because at first it's just so exciting to be nominated and then it's human nature that starts to normalize and then by the time the awards come around it's like it'd be really nice to win you know so try not to let that happen but it's going to happen probably um and I'll get excited and want to win and you know then I won't <laughs> I you know whenever a prize thing comes on I'm always like I've got as much chance as every anyone and it's a crapshoot and I don't know what the judges are looking for I'm just gonna be happy to be on the shortlist and then like the night before I'm like I better write a, yeah I better write a speech really I better not forget <laughs> to thank him <laughs> but I guess that the thing with yeah. love letters <laughs> being nominated is uh, you know obviously your work has always been incredibly intimate and personal, but this is your singing on some of the tunes you you collaborated with songwriters to you know put voices to um, the lyric you know the voices to the lyric you know it, it tells the story of um, the breakdown of the relationship <laughs> and it talks about yeah. um, motherhood and spirituality mm-hmm. and so many different things and so this one must feel like it counts for more because it I don't know does it feel more personal. It does feel more personal this time. Um, and it feels really nice to be recognized for this piece of work. Um, because I really, I made it very differently. You know, as you say, it's a very intimate piece of work and it's very personal. So I I just haven't done the same circuit with this one. You know, we didn't do a big global tour. I mean, I guess we couldn't have anyway this year, but, but I but deliberately wasn't going to do big tours and loads of press. And and so the fact that it still managed to kind of pop out and, and receive some recognition like that, um, it does feel really good. And I had a little moment of getting kind of emotional last night and thinking about the last couple of years and going, wow, like this this journey of this really, really personal kind of diary entries that then turned into like drinking cups of tea with really close female friends that then turned into song lyrics that then became music is is out there having a moment like this. It feels really nice. And, and, and one of the things that you kind of described so perfectly at the start but I just want to draw attention to it because I think it is peculiarly particular thing about being an artist and being a parent is your kids don't really know the kudos so like you know I got nominated for a Grammy my kids still won't go to bed and like that kind of switch between you know yeah the, the world is recognizing how amazing mm-hmm. my work is but my kids are disrespecting my authority yeah. I'll tell you the extent the the extent of like Grammy special treatment was I'd let the kitchen get kind of messy cooking dinner yesterday. And so after I found out I had been nominated for my seventh Grammy, I insisted the boys help me dry the dishes because <laughs> at the very least, I wasn't going to have to do that alone. These Grammy nominated <laughs> hands won't dry <laughs> so anything. Get your tea towels. <laughs> And that was like my treat to myself, was I'm not <laughs> you, doing this and, alone. And, and they were like, the whole time they were like, but we've got a dishwasher. And you were like, no, we're going to stay humble and wash everything up. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, obviously I, I talk about in, in the book, in Brown Baby, is this idea of being, you know, a male, like being a father who, who's raising two girls and, you know, what, what I need to think about or what I, I need to be aware of and that kind of sort of, kind of like I'm quite self-effacing about the journey I go on to kind of go from being goofy mm-hmm. dad who sort of understands and understands misogyny and sexism in the abstract to actually kind of being confronted by it by it and sort of feeling like feeling changed in the process and I part of my research was sort of doing doing a lot of deep dive dive googling on um articles about how how boys should raise (laughs) girls or how men should raise girls and one of the things that it Mm. one of the things that I I I kind of discovered along the way was actually a lot of the way that um we are like I guess men in particular are 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 expect are sort of encouraged to raise girls is 
actually stuff that we should be talking to boys as well. And obviously, like I'm, you know, a, a male father with two girls, and you, you are, mm-hmm. you've got two boys. And I just wondered if we could just talk a little bit about um, that, you know, raising mm-hmm. raising boys and girls. I know, I know, I know. This is all very binary way way of, way of thinking, yeah, about no, it, no. but you know, I, mm-hmm. I think it it's one of those things where like it's important to think about how we raise boys in in a way. And I, and I just wonder if it's something that you think about. I think about it all the time. Um, it's really present for me. And um, first of all, I just want to say you described that stuff so beautifully in your book. I mean, I, I loved reading your perspective on raising girls. And um, and I did identify with the, the process of learning and discovery required a lot. Because um, for me, when I was pregnant with my first child, without really knowing it, I really wanted girls. And I really was hoping it would be a girl. And when I found out it was a boy, I wasn't disappointed, I was scared. And and it was that first emotion that made me kind of realize why I'd wanted a girl. It wasn't because of like dressing it up in dresses or it wasn't because of any kind of, it was rather, it was a kind of, I just don't want to have to deal with a boy. I don't, I don't know how to do boys. I know a girl. And obviously that's total bullshit because all I know is me and so I'm identifying and thinking I know what a girl is. But, but leaving that aside, it showed me that like mm. I had work to do. I had a lot of work to do to learn how to parent boys. And it sort of hit me really hard before even having my first one. But when I was pregnant that like boys grow up to become men. <laughs> like any any sort of fear that I carry as a woman any intimidation that I feel around men overall, you know, any of my first reactions when I meet men on a street or, you know, all of that stuff, or, you know, those are little boys that grew up to be men. And, and it's really kind of powerful to think of the possibilities that exist when you realize that you have the chance to raise mm. men, you know, and, and the kind of frightening responsibility of that as well, but also the beautiful possibility of that. Um, so yeah, just uh, there's a lot we can say, but just to kind of sum up that first thought, it, it is something that's very, very present for me and I think about a lot. If we're talking about utopia and what I want the world to look like, I don't want to raise my girls in a world where they are afraid of men or they're afraid of boys. And so yeah, I think a lot about how how I raise them so that, you know they are aware but also that they're not you know afraid and and then that makes me think about how we should be raising boys you know it's it, and it's it's all just so prevalent and and also it, it at, at a very base level like you know much as we try to um we try to do stuff in the home or like you know when my kids were were young like all of their clothes were hand-me-downs from boy cousins and so like they weren't wearing like tri- like you know like stereotypically girly clothes um and it was only once they started going to nursery and sort of going out into the world and becoming independent and sort of feeding off other people that they were coming back into the home and demanding that they wear dresses and that those dresses be pink and glitter and all the rest of it and I think that's really interesting because it was nothing that came from us but it was just a reminder that I can't control that I so identify I mean my <clears throat> my first child was a different experience because uh, and I'm sure you you've experienced this as well but but before school, with a first child, there's this very unique microcosm you get to create that is of your own making. And once school comes in, or with a second child, once your older child's already in school, that can't be the same ever again. But those first few years, like my, my first child had no sense of gender differences. He had no sense that he couldn't paint his nails all the colors he wanted to. You know, he had not one but two female alter egos. You know, one liked a blue sequin skirt and one liked dressing up as a mermaid. And and we'd be out on the streets, you know, walking down the road with him in bangles and my bikini tops tied up tight behind him. I mean, it was like, it was completely fine, you know. And and I think if he if he hadn't grown out of that and wanted to continue that way, that would have been completely fine as well. But, but in his experience, you know, school came and he suddenly came home and went, I can't wear nail polish. Can you take this off me, please? And... And I remember just wanting to rage and go into that school and like kick the butts of anyone that had said anything that made him realize that he wasn't supposed to do that because it felt like something magical just closed down with that with that day at school, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, it's just, yeah, obviously in a utopia and, and we are, I think, moving 
closer towards that as time goes on, you know, um, societally, it, it does get easier and I want that to be easier. It's been really interesting because I, I've been raising my kids to be aware of this stuff since they were really young. And, you know, with my older, older child, it started when he was like three, I think, when he asked, when I kind of dropped the word feminism and he asked me what it was. And, and I really remember we sat on the table together, like we were sat on the table eating blueberries. And I started giving him all these parallels about the chores I was giving him and his, his female friend and how I'd be giving him two blueberries for every one blueberry I was giving her or that I'd give him certain jobs and her certain jobs or that I'd give her certain jobs and then she also had to do all the other stuff. And, and, and we were just doing all this kind of like age appropriate stuff. And ever since then, we've talked about it in different layers and in different ways to the point that he really pulls me up now. He's so conscious, even if I make any possible unconscious moment he'll catch it you know and he'll he'll correct it in me but it's been really important for me to start to have more compassion as he's growing up for the fact that mm. it's a two-sided coin you know and, and and I think having boys has helped me to see more of that other perspective because I can see now he's really aware of the stuff that women go through because we talk about it all the time but now I have to be really really careful that I'm not dumping any mm. sense of weight or guilt on him that it's really about focusing also on all the things that boys are denied and men are denied and ways in which their experiences are diminished and the expectations placed on them. And to try and be kind about the stuff that he finds difficult when he hears about it, if that makes any sense. It's a, it's a new thought for me, but I think a lot of the stuff he hears, he starts to then take on and go, why, why does that happen that way? Why do men do that? And and to kind of really try and be careful around the fact that he's growing up into a man. And so there's no sense of blame, shame going on at the same time as teaching him. It's, it's a really nuanced, odd thing to try and figure out. I guess, you know, the, the perfect ally is the person who is aware and willing to call it out when they see it in the world. But at the same time, when you are growing and developing and pushing up against boundaries and wanting to explore the parameters what's acceptable who you are and all the rest of it there will come times where you know our kids will actively run away from the you know the things that we've tried to instill in them just that just as an act of trying to understand its weight in the world and 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 i guess it is about in those moments not shaming them into kind of feeling feeling bad but sort of you know giving them the space to explore but also being there to pick up the pieces when they kind of realize that that's not the way the world works absolutely and as you say as they get older you know i don't have the experience of teenage children yet so it's it's an unknown world to me but i know that they mm. won't come to me for everything you know and i think that's been something that that i've been trying to nurture a little bit is I remember having like a couple of godmothers who felt really safe to me that when I didn't feel like I could talk to my mom I could talk to them and and yet they were people my mom trusted so I'm sure that was really nice for her and I've kind of tried planting a couple of male figures you know I mean they have their father of course but but also in, in my own life um, a couple of kind of close male allies that I, I want them to have these close relationships with so that when there's stuff invariably that they don't want to come to their mom for they know a couple of these kind of uncle figures. No, I mean, on, I, had, I had this one this one godmother that was so different from my mum, and that's precisely why it worked. It, it was my mum's best friend, but she was so opposite, and she just was the most kind of, for example, openly liberated, sexually free adult I knew, you know, and, and coming from kind of British Indian and Indian American upbringings, you know, that was lacking <laughs> in a lot of ways. and. Uh, you know, she bought me a kind of sex thesaurus when I was 11 and told me to find a hand shower and get to work, you know, and she said, like, there's going to be nothing more important in your life than you learning how to please yourself. And it was like, oh, my God, there was an adult in my life that spoke to me like that. And that became the person throughout my teenage years that I would go to when I had questions. And like that stuff fills me with horror about having children today. I'm like, are they going to Google that thing that they want to know about? You know, are they going to Google the word breasts and then suddenly see the most hardcore pornographic images that I don't want to have be their first experience of sex? You know what I mean? It's that stuff where I'm like, can I plant enough adults in their lives that, that are also there as voices for them to go to? I, I really, I get scared of that stuff quite a bit, I think. Back to that, that thing about um, 
men and boys and, and, and stuff like and I, and I hope you don't mind me I hope you don't mind me asking about this so, so please please tell me if this feels too painful to talk about but we are two people who have lost parents um, you know I've lost my mum who would have been the person I would have dreamed like you know I would have gone to her about every neurotic thing because my mum was quite neurotic and appreciated the neuroses of others um, but uh, you, you're someone who, who lost uh, your father 10 years ago uh, I think um, almost 10 years ago and obviously your relationship with your father um, you know Ravi Shankar is that you know he was he was a sort of huge world icon and he was your father and he was also your teacher in a way and and also like your bandmate um, or you were his band I don't, mm. I, don't, I don't know how those I don't know how those yeah, dynamics work <laughs> but that that kind of absence uh, like it would be really interesting to kind of for you to kind of talk about your relationship with him and how that kind of uh, then gets fed out into how you look at your, your boys. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, the, the grief stuff aside, which, which is hard to put aside, obviously, but, um, you know, I, I feel... I feel really conscious that he never met my second child and that feels desperately sad, you know, and I, I love that my, my first child has some memories of my dad, um, but he's really present for them as well. Like he's really kind of in our lives still. And, I, and I'm lucky that I've got the kind of father where there's so much material as well. You know, we can watch videos and listen to music and we can hear his voice on recordings. And so he can kind of be there in a way which which is very fortunate. Um, but I think I parent very, very, very differently than, than my father did. So I don't have necessarily that same experience of like, which you might have, of, of like missing my dad when I want someone to go to or ask advice to. That doesn't really come up for me um, because that's more of my mum for me and and so I do go to her and, and and ask for all those things um but yeah so it's so it's more it's more like a a grief obviously that he's not there a part of their lives uh, rather than a kind of missing a template I think I I, I guess you know being artists who are creating things you know so much of what I think about in my role as a writer is that I am archivist and I am you know I'm communicating with the future and so like you know if I were to suddenly have a stroke at the age of 42 because I work too damn hard then I would have all this huge body of work for for my daughters that I'm kind of like you know I'm in conversation with them directly um 
and, and I want I, I wonder if like having that huge as you said having that huge body of work for, for the father and those interviews and um, the videos and, and and the fact that he was very well documented as a person they will have they will be able to kind of get a sense of who he was rather than just stories that you might pass on which I think is quite interesting mm-hmm. I think you know the, the the stuff for me that's all sort of wrapped up and hard to separate is that um you know I obviously learned from him as you said as well so so from when I was about seven eight he was my guru and so my only experience of having a father is that my father was also my guru so which strand is teacher which strand is father which strand is collaborator it's hard for me to unpick those things um but but my parents definitely settled in two roles where my mum was the primary parent and my dad was the primary guru, you know, and, and they were both involved in both aspects. But but my mum was the one that fed me and clothed me and made sure I got my homework done or arranged my appointments or whatever those things were. And my dad taught me music and took me on stage with him. Who, who was telling and you off when you broke curfew? Well, they kind of went standard on that one where my mum did all the all the yelling and every now and then he'd come and be really scary and rarely shout. But when he did, it was terrifying. Um, so he'd step in only if uh, only if required. So all to kind of say, I'm their mother. You know, I'm not their kind of touring father. And so so my experience of parenting my boys is very, very different. And also my experience of being a musician is very, very different because my template that I grew up with was you know, with some exceptions, it was a lot of incredible male artists with partners at home that took on the greater share of raising the children while the men could do the greater share of getting really lost in their work, you know, and getting deeply involved in that creative process or going away for months on end to tour. And I think for me, that's been one of the biggest sort of struggles and confusions is is the template I grew up with, I realized once I had children, was the male template. I was on the path to be like my dad. You know, I was touring, I was doing 100 shows a year, I was making albums, I was go, 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 you know, make art, get lost, do all this, go deep, get recognized for that work. And then suddenly with kids, it was like, where was my wife like where was the mother of my children who is going to pick up that gap and make sure that the kids had that mothering that had to come from me and so the pull has been very very difficult to navigate because every now and then my artist side does kind of rear its head and go, but but I want to go and do 100. I want to go and play in every major city in the world when I've got this piece of work that I believe in. You know, I want to go share it here and there, and I want to get to follow my creative voice till four in the morning, you know, and, and get to finish that idea. I want to go have a retreat workshop with five other musicians. And, you know, there's no self-pity in there, but there is a yearning as well to kind of go and do it that way. And I've had to really, really temper that process and find a different way, you know. And, and as my kids grow, each year I find the amount that I did the year before was too much. Every year I'm lessening. Every single year I'm taking less work, less work, less work. Because, because obviously parenting is primary. You know, obviously mothering is, is the first thing. And the other thing has to come second. Um, I don't even know how I got to this from what you were asking me, but... But I guess just to say that like that father musician template doesn't work. So I've had to kind of try and make up a, a single mother artist template um, that is very weird. <laughs> it is so important to talk about because I, I, I just I guess I just don't think that this is sort of talked about a, a, enough. Like we, we obviously read the biographies of those great male artists who had their wife and children at home while they were like you know getting lost in themselves on you know a four-day lsd trip making an album somewhere across halfway across the world (laughs) whereas like for you is it is it you know being creative and and creating and getting lost in things is is that more much more of a practical thing that you have to schedule in these days do you kind of have to compartmentalize 
what that looks like. Yeah, I do. And, and you know, um, I think there are some things I would do again that I, like when my first child was a baby and I was working on, on Traveller, which is a, a flamenco Indian music record, um, there were a few times I would go and just stay in Madrid for a few days with my producer. And I think, and I would then get that experience of getting to just work really hard and, and be creative and have that fun and then come back home. And I think those things are realistic and, and can be can be done. But um, on the whole, um, it's been about sort of being creative between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., you know, um, or between 8.30 p.m. and 10 p.m., you know. And uh, that whole last experience of making music with, with Love Letters um, was really interesting for me because I worked with, with other women and my main collaborator was also another single mother and it was extraordinary to realize that things could be done differently when they were allowed to be so you know by that I mean that there's a template that people assume is the normal way to work and so I would sometimes I've had some experiences even if everyone's really kind and there's no issue but I'll sometimes feel a little guilty that I need to leave on time whereas everyone else seems to be able to work late or you know and I feel like I'm letting the side down and not um, giving it my all even though I am I'm giving it more than my all because I've got to go and, and, and have my kids as well but but with Aleph because we were working together it was just a, a revolutionary way of working for me that like sometimes it would be our kids playing upstairs and and the writing process was entirely around the bits of time they would let us have or that we just meet I live lens yeah exactly um so she co-produced and co-wrote um the music on love letters and so we wrote within school hours you know and and there was no guilt there was no pressure that like I can't work today he's he's not letting me or she can't work today because and we would just snatch these times and be really focused when we when we had the time and sometimes it was an hour and a half session instead of an eight hour session and we'd meet five times instead of one time. Um, but it was beautiful because it allowed me to be creative without that sort of traditional picture of what that means. Yeah, I scheduled where this is going to come in the run yet. But if you were listening to this after the Emmy the Great episode, um, I did. I talked to Emmy the Great about or if you're if the Emmy the Great episode hasn't come out yet i'm going to talk to emmy the great about um so she she talked in her when i when i spoke to her she talked about um her kid was five months old and she had the 10 year anniversary of her first album and she'd had plans to tour it for so long and so she took the kid out on tour with her and an aunt and you know, and her support, support, the support on the tour were, um, I think they were all women and, you know, it just became this sort of lovely, everyone pitching in to kind of help her through this sort of kind of nutsy endeavour that she was on where she was like um, breastfeeding a kid and, you know, hauling bass guitars up fire escapes in, in the rain and stuff like that. And um, it's, it just, it was just such a, a reminder that, um, this sort of idea of um, being creative or be, being an artist and being a parent, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. It just sort of requires everyone to be less in love with the kind of like auteur, um, single-minded auteur syndrome that I think kind of casts such a negative light on on um what it is to be an artist because actually I think these things should be in conversation with each other like in a weird way being um becoming a father has made being an author or being being a writer has given it so much more purpose and urgency that um I'm writing I'm writing like you know I'm writing with with a real fire in my belly because I, I know who it need who who's the intended audience for it now and I think that that has really focused me in a way but at the same time like you know like you and being you know being a father who, who wants to be as present as possible in the way that you know my, my dad didn't give himself the time to be and sort of wanting to be different from from that um I have to get as much as I can done between 9 15 and 2 45 every single day and um and then work into the night and uh, you know i'm not saying that i've got it just as hard as you but um 
but but that but that that thing of like compartmentalizing your creativity is, is an interesting space for me i think i think um, and also touching on what you were saying about emmy the great like I've definitely had those experiences uh, with my first child. We were on tour and kind of made a baby bed and a cot in the tour bus and, you know, all the rehearsal breaks for when I would breastfeed. And, you know, it, it was magical and amazing. But but it isn't sustainable unless the template changes. You know, if, if you try to kind of fit parenting into traditional setups, it doesn't work. It has to be flexible. And, and I think... You know, some of us have, like if I'm a band leader, for example, I have the fortune that I can kind of set the rehearsal schedule a little bit, for example. But what does a band member get to do? You know, what does a new mother get to do if she's needing to be hired by somebody else and can't fit the, the schedule that's dictated in these kind of traditional ways that have usually involved predominantly men, you know, without children strapped to their backs. So it, 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 there's a template that needs changing. And, and I think this stuff needs challenging everywhere like literally very recently I was involved with something that is particularly about feminist issues and there ended up being a kind of issue around the fact that I wasn't available to do interviews at certain times even though they didn't give me a lot of notice I said I'm free all day and I left this whole day free for them but then they kind of said okay we've got this radio interview for you at 8 30 and we've got one at 6 30 and I'm like that's school runtime that's kids bedtime you know and, and, and it was like really like we're gonna announce something feminist here and you're not understanding that (laughs) (laughs) that it you know so anyway this stuff just comes up again and again and (laughs) yeah what what else can you say (laughs) well um going back going back to um your your boys one of the things that i really uh admire from like the, the the brief time i've spent with them is is your your ability to just to kind of give them space to be creative on their own terms as well and you know being an artist who kind of followed in you know followed in your parents uh, your your parents footsteps and you know being of a family where other people have kind of gone into music but do do you ever do you ever think god i I really wish my i really wish my kids would just pick up a damn instrument or you are you are you much much more open (laughs) about it and you're like well because i do think certainly when when kids are young like for like ensuring that there is creative time it just you know it flexes their imagination it flexes their create critical thinking it flexes the parameters of what they feel like the world should look like and and so i do think that you know ensuring that kids have creative time is, is incredibly important but you know i just wonder how you approach it um i approach it by trying to stay out of it really um because uh i don't want to be their guru i want to be their mum um and I, I know some people who do both very successfully I don't think it's impossible but I don't find that easy and I think we might end up being a classic generational case where you know one kid plays piano so they don't teach their kid piano then the other kid wants to play piano and it goes on and on and on my, my kids might grow up and resent that I didn't give them this incredible music tradition that I was given by by my father you know but I don't know how to do that without being very strict and pedantic <laughs> and, you know, uh, and, and that's not the relationship I want to have with them. So, yeah, it's very much about, like, they love to draw and so they draw whenever they want to and we never have a free table because it's covered in in paper and pencils and it's just allowed to be a bit messier and I don't know which of these things might end up being careers and I'm not being a very good Indian parent that way by, like, steering or highlighting or... But I think we're kind of happier at the moment as a result of that. And I, I prioritize that, really. Mm. And as I say, I'm sure I'll regret some aspect of that later. But, but we're happier <laughs> right now. But I think I, I, I wonder if sometimes that sort of that sense of tradition and heritage, you kind of needs to be innate it can't really be forced in the same way that you know I feel sad now that you know my kids are three and six and I haven't been talking to them in Gujarati since they mm. were born but then I haven't spoken Gujarati properly for like you know 10-15 years unless I'm yeah. talking to my grandma because like there came a switch when me and my sister were um teenagers where you know we'd come home and we'd speak in Gujarati and then after a while we'd reply in English and then after a while my par- our parents would just ask us yeah. in English um and so it would be forced for me to kind of talk to them in Gujarati 
um, and so it's it's just not an innate thing. Whereas the sort of the idea of storytelling, you know, how I value storytelling as a way of learning about the world and and uh, learning about people, because you know, as you know, like I'm just endlessly fascinated and interested in people. That to me is much more innate, and so storytelling is so mm-hmm. much more of what we do quite naturalistically whether it's you know sharing books and reading books or just lying on the floor staring at the ceiling and making up a story sentence by sentence totally yeah we do that yeah yeah I think you're right it, 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 being forced it doesn't work and I've, I've had exactly the same guilt around not passing on languages um you know they can count up to five in Hindi and they can sing one song in Bengali and say zero words in Tamil and that's that's <laughs> that's what happened there um so yeah, I don't know. It's it it's got to feel free and it's got to feel natural. And I think every every child is creative because every human is creative, you know. And um, and just to sort of create the space where that is nurtured in whatever capacity feels feels good to me. And I think I like the way you phrased that. But uh, how did you phrase it? But I like what you said that. Um, I pass on the things that are kind of naturally important to me, you know, and, and our focus is kind of very much it's sort of imagination and it's consciousness and having conversations. You know, it, it's so beautiful kind of watching, especially this last year, you know, all the kind of enhanced conversations about race, for example, that are happening with children as well. And like watching where my kids are with that stuff and, and watching how they see things and bring them home to talk about them and want to understand and want to unpick and want to contribute it's that feels beautiful you know and so yeah for every little bit that I kind of feel oh I'm not passing that on I also really love some other piece that does seem to be happening in a really lovely can, way can, can we can we talk about that if you don't mind because um so in oh this is going to come out in 2021 but so in June in 2020 June 2020 obviously after the the murder of George Floyd there were so many more renewed conversations about race and racism and I remember talking to you on on text quite a lot about this both of us feeling that now was you know the critical time for our kids us to be having those conversations again with our kids and you told me about some really interesting exercises that you were doing with your kids around um uh you you, you were you were all writing down sort of various facets of yourselves and using them to kind of um you know talk about what it is to be human yeah. and I really love that exercise and you know I tried it with my kids but you know they were slightly too young f- for that to kind of... I'd forgotten about that but it's just, it, I mean we were just doing so much reading and, and still are but uh, one of the books we were reading um, I think was probably aimed at teenagers a bit more but it was talking about you know self-identification and, and how do you see yourself and how do you present yourself and and what are you and how all those things aren't necessarily the same but um, you know we, we got out our diaries and we're writing all these things. And I, I was watching my nine-year-old, you know, being able to say, I, I am a cis brown male. You know, I, I don't know if I'm straight or gay yet. I, you know, it, it was just beautiful. Like he had a kind of nuanced language available to him um, that was so profound. Um, and, and just the fact that he said, I don't know when it came to sexuality, that it wasn't, it wasn't even that he'd imbibed an automatic template of that he's straight until proven otherwise. It was, I don't know because I'm not sexual yet. Yeah. You know, like I don't have crushes yet. I don't know what they are. So I don't know what I am yet. And, and that was totally comfortable. Um, yeah. And it just gave me a lot of hope and, and, and they're different ages. So I think sometimes I have to catch myself that I, I do a lot of things with a lot of input and energy with my first child and then kind of assume it's trickled down to the younger child who's also in the room. And so literally just this week, um, you know, my younger one was describing people in his classroom and I was multitasking. So I missed something. And my older one was the one who came to me really quietly in the corner and was like, did you hear what he said, mommy? And I said, no, what did he say? And he said, he referred to her as having brown skin and the other one as having normal skin. Yeah, and I actually thought of you because of some of the things in your book, you know, around 
you know, somewhere my younger one has absorbed and imbibed that white skin is the default and that we describe brown skin to help explain somebody and that we don't have to do that with someone with white skin, you know, and this is my half brown child, you know, and, and it was said with no, there was no judgment involved in any of that sentence, but it was just the phrase brown and normal, you know, and it's so normalized. And so that was an opportunity for then me to sit down with my younger one and speak about it in a really easy way. You know, I've got brown skin, you've got slightly lighter brown skin, that person's got white skin, this person's got black skin, but my skin feels normal to me because I'm in it and any other color would feel weird for me and that skin feels normal for her. So when we say normal skin, it doesn't help us know what that is, you know, and it's okay to call, I don't know, it was just kind of like a really nice opportunity. But, but the thing that I felt so pleased about in that moment was that my older child was the one who caught it. And that just showed me that we're in a different place today if that makes any sense, that it wasn't me in the room teaching both of them, that like enough stuff has gone into the older kid's head and heart that he caught That's it. so lovely. I didn't catch it, he caught That's it. so lovely. Yeah. So we're kind of coming towards the end, so I've got a, a couple of questions. I'm going to start with a super easy one to answer. But... Um, <laughs> Whenever someone yeah. says that, it's never easy. <laughs> Sit down. Uh, strap in. Um <laughs> One of the things that I think about a lot, probably all the time, is, you know, my, my sense of optimism about the world kind of wavers. It kind of ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. um, depending on me, depending on the news, depending on all of it. Um, but the one thing that I don't want to do is um, make my kids have unrealistic expectations as well. But at the same time, I want to ensure that they are pushing themselves towards joy at all times and I find that that's hard especially when I'm so up and down and I wondered if you had any strategies or methods or or just ways of finding joy in in dark times did you really say that was an easy question no no it's Um, the hardest question which is why I leave it to the end yeah okay yeah joy in dark times um I mean there's a part of me that's sort of inherently an optimist even when things get really hard um but I'll struggle with that sometimes too um and I think one of the things that we do as a family is is gratitude you know um and so we don't do it every single night but a lot of the nights when they're when they're falling asleep we'll kind of go through our day and try and find things that we're grateful for and even if something difficult's going on uh, we try and allow the space for that like I don't I've, I've done it, I've been, I'm guilty of having done this before and I try not to do it, that, you know. But look on the bright side and isn't it lovely that you also, not that, you know, allow the space for the shitty thing and the pain and whatever yeah. it is, but then to also try and turn it around and go, but, you know, can we imagine if, if this hadn't been there at least or what would it have been like if you had, and we'll kind of go through those things and, and, and I think on the whole that really helps create and cultivate a sense of awareness around all the positives that we have in our life and not just focus on the on the negatives i love that that's so simple and so lovely um well i mean that's something i have to practice hasn't yeah. it <laughs> so it's just it's just trying to pass the same things on that work for me really. um, what has been your biggest parenting fail and obviously don't tell me anything that might be subject to future prosecutions hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah um <clears throat> well having narrowed those out um <laughs> I think using shaming language, you know, I think it can be really easy to revert to stuff that are the voices in our head of things we heard as kids. Um, and I think there are times, you know, especially when upset or stressed or whatever, that like I'll parent less consciously than, than other moments. And there are so often so many ways to deal with the same situation. And on the whole, I think I'm, um, I'm a good parent when it comes to being able to have really good nuanced discussions with my yeah. kids, but that flies out the window when I'm, when I'm stressed and angry, you know, and I can be really guilty of saying things in ways that I feel like I've passed on something that, that is messaging I don't want to pass on, you know, and, and I think the beautiful thing about parenting consciously is at least we then get to go back and correct that. 
but I, I never like when I have done that. Yeah, one of the things that my eldest child keeps saying about herself whenever she can't do anything, which I worry is something that's come from me or my partner, is she'll say, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I can't do this. I'm really stupid. And I, and I really worry that that's something that's come, come from us. Um, what has been the best advice you've ever received as a parent or what's been the most useless advice? I mean, useless is like when people come up to you when you have a baby and go, you know, enjoy this time. It's going to go before you know it. You know, make the most of it. It's like, what, is that, what, is that, what does that even mean? You know, what does it mean? Of course, I enjoy this time when I'm enjoying it. And of course, I'm not enjoying it when I'm not enjoying it. And you coming up to me and just going, this is precious. Like, doesn't Yeah, help didn't enjoy that. Me. Do any, yeah. <laughs> um, and as far as the best advice, I don't know. Um, there's just been so much. Um, I think, if anything, just to remember that, like, the stuff that works for me works for them as well, you know? And, like, I, I, I you know, when I'm being hard on my kids, to remember not to be too hard on myself, you know? And when I practice that kind of compassion and tolerance towards myself, it gets easier to do it with them so that so it's actually worth practicing that stuff for myself it's not too wanky because it actually helps them too um and just to kind of remember that reflexive element of parenting yeah Anushka Shankar Grammy nominated Anushka Shankar I'm joking um (laughs) thank you so much for joining us on the brown baby podcast you're amazing and I adore you and thank you for your time I love you thanks for having me Thank you so much for joining us this week. I've put a link to Anushka's shop in the show notes so you can pick up her incredible records. And there is also a buy link for Brown Baby. So head there and buy my memoir. Thank you to Anushka, to Acast and to my publishers Bluebird. And thank you to you guys. See you next week. Brown Baby Podcast. Goodbye. Brown Baby, I am Brown Baby. Yes, I am, I am. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-